0: Following our conversation on demonetization, Dr. Agarwal and I discuss the introduction of the goods and services tax regime. The central government introduces this change only six months after the demonetization exercise. We discuss how this aggravated an already chaotic situation and then move on to identifying a few key issues with the Indian economy as it stands now. We end with a discussion of our expectations of the federal budget for financial year 2020. Let's tune in. is touch upon GST and then Amol's going to give us uh, you know, three or four sort of major reasons as to why the Indian economy is not expanding and hasn't expanded for the last uh, 24 months or so. So Amol, uh, if you don't mind uh, sort of introducing what GST was and then just sort of walking us through that. Yeah, sure. Yeah. So thanks
1: again. Uh, the, the GST uh, when you expand it, it's called the goods and services tax, uh, which basically means that all the indirect taxes are to be subsumed into one tax and uh, maybe just a very few rates. Maybe very, very few, I mean, moving to as fewer tax rates as possible. And I'll, I'll I'll just explain why that is important. But I think some historical background is needed here. GST has been in planning for, for a very, very long time. Right, since I think Atul Bihari Vajpayee mentioned that we need uh we had too many indirect taxes in india several state taxes and there was what uh, economists call it as a very very painful cascading system now by a cascading system it means that if i am buying something from you so you've paid tax i have then i again go on to pay tax on that and uh, so as a result and then you have these multiple taxes multiple goods and As a producer, you are buying several things, you're supplying several things, and you're paying multiple taxes on several things. And if you happen to move from one state to the other, again, you know, dealing with several taxes. This is uh, typically problematic in the sense that our constitution uh, gives certain subjects to tax upon, and uh, the states certain subjects to tax upon. And the states have uh, pretty much all the freedom to tax based on the, the, the various goods. The services taxes uh, have uh, pretty much been with the center. And uh, another feature of the constitution is that the Indians, not the feature of the constitution, but a feature of Indian political system or uh, economic system when it comes between the center and the states is that the center uh, collects about 60, 70% of the tax revenues and spends about 30, 30% of them. And the states collect 30, 40% of the taxes and spend 60, 70%. So there's a there's a feature in the constitution which says, because of this asymmetric fiscal federalism, the centre will be sharing its resources with the states, and you have okay. a finance commission which comes in every five years to, to kind of tell you what that distribution is going to look like. Okay. Uh, given this, uh, we've got multiple taxes and multiple things, and this the, the government in the right interest of the country, and its business persons and several other consumers decided to work towards a goods and services tax where all these indirect taxes I'm mentioning uh, of several kinds both at the center and the state level will be subsumed under one tax. This obviously means that it's not something which is which is very easy to do because you need states on the board. Uh, so quick because, question,
0: uh, uh, was the VAT, the VAT, was that an earlier attempt to sort of create yes. this uniform? Okay, great. Yeah. Right.
1: So essentially uh, they said, look, uh, we need states on board and the, then the state said let us first get into a value-added tax system. So all the states first implemented a value-added tax system, uh, which means that you move from a cascading system to a value addition, then you have to, you're basic, basically paying taxes on, and but these these VAT rates, again, differed across states, but at the same time, the multiple taxes remained. So there is this long uh, political negotiations going on with the center and the states, starting from 2003, several committees being formed, finance commissions, uh, increasingly telling us that, you know, GST is very important for the country and uh, so on and so forth. So when Vajpayee gives this uh, idea, we have the 2004 elections, the UPA one comes in and Chidambaram and all these guys also begin to think that GST is important and they begin to work on it. And this is 2004 and a lot of negotiations are going on. Each year you think that each budget speech from 2006-7, Chidambaram is making an announcement that you know we're going to implement GST soon, implement GST soon, but it keeps getting, keeps getting delayed. Then you have the 2008 crisis, then everything is taken to a backseat, and uh, then again there is this UPA-2 where where GST is not being implemented, and uh, the again there is this friction between between uh, you know the the states the states which were run by the ruling party were okay with the GST, but the states which had uh, the opposition party as the ruling part, as in the, the chief ministers from the opposition party, they were kind of not happy with the GST structure. So as a result, then again, we come to 2014 and we are all being told that GST is coming, GST is coming, GST is coming. And there's this entire, you know, hype around and a lot, a lot of expectations around that GST is going to transform the economy. I right. come very quickly to uh, 2017 is where on 1st July, just like uh, I'm forgetting the date, but whatever the date is, the, the government says, you know, and we've just gone through demonetization and the government says, you know, we've got to get, go ahead with the GST.
0: And this and, is uh, six months after demonetization, correct? Yeah, yeah,
1: yeah. So, okay. so the GST uh, then comes in the at the midnight, just like you had political independence.
0: Mm-hmm. Uh, I
1: mean, you, you celebrated your independence day on 15, on the 14th August night. And I mean, sorry, the 5, uh, 15th August, um, uh, 12 o'clock. Likewise, uh, you, know, you had a very similar arrangement, uh, calling it as the, as the biggest thing the government has done so far. Right. But essentially, uh, things didn't pan out. I mean, if there is one kind of a reform or something which has been very puzzling all this while, is that despite so many years of planning and so much of thought gone into the process, how did GST really become what was essentially supposed to be one of the major factors for boosting Indian economic growth, ends up being one of the major factors for kind of restricting that growth or you know not or making it very problematic and I think the problem here was that GST was very very uh, poorly if I, if I can use the word planned and executed and uh, again, demonetization didn't really impact the big firms. it impacted the small and medium firms where cash cycles are very important, and right. the economy is trying to and some of these firms are trying to recover and GST. You know, one is this whole economics uh, idea. I mean, economists' idea that there is isn't one nation, one tax, and that that's going to reform the system. Fine, but I think taxes uh, and the way Indian system works is that we should have we should have had more consultations with some of these uh, people, like CAs and lawyers and stuff like that, to really understand what's going on. And uh, we didn't. Uh, even if there were, perhaps some of those advices were ignored, and uh, I think so this the whole uh, thing of.
0: Basic, uh, very quick interruption. The basic assumption behind creating, say, a pan India taxation, a goods and services tax, is to simplify the system. And right. I'm guessing it's an ease of business type of initiative, correct?
1: Right, right.
0: Okay. And so, in theory, business, that, that was the idea.
1: Ease of business, and also, you know, one is that ease of business, you kind of, you know, have these licenses going down and you remove restrictions. This was. This would also transform the Indian trade. I mean, it will be very easy for you to move from one state to the other, pay similar taxes.
0: Right, and, and really... avoid that situation of cascading taxes where, right, right, you know, right. the end product, the end consumer, there's a whole bunch of layers of taxation that has. Right, that, right, right, I remember uh, when VAT came out, that basically what, ha- what you know, It it was up to the vendors to decide, you know, whether it's four or eight or 12%. And the consumer ultimately always was paying like this exorbitant amount of tax, you know.
1: Yeah, sure. So, uh, and then in the GST, in order to, you know, simplify things between the, so the center and the states, both were collecting the half thing. So essentially the GST structure, uh, which the economists were always arguing was put all the goods and services into the, into the system and have one rate. All right. And there was a stock of a revenue neutral rate, which basically means that what that one rate where the government is not expected to lose any tax revenues.
0: Right. Okay. So sort of but, like almost like a flat tax kind of a flat regime. tax.
1: But what really happened is you had some four or five categories. And all those four or five categories, it was something which was very arbitrary and very randomly done. I mean, a, a way a good friend, Abhinandan Khanna, we, uh, we were chatting with him in Bangalore and you know, he was pointing out how his firm of furniture had suddenly moved from a VAT system of 12% to 28%, and GST is paying 28%. And his his, his argument was that who is going to pay 28% kind of a GST for furniture? I mean, so in that process, it was all very randomly done. There is no method to this madness, and you put certain goods in 28%, and the idea is that there are certain goods like merit goods and sin goods are like all this, all these things like alcohol and stuff like that, and you want to dissuade people from consuming them, you want to put them in higher taxation. But some of those things like some, some even basic stuff was put into very high taxation system, high tax rate. Well, I
0: mean, automobiles is 30% and furniture. I mean, I, sure, uh, uh, Khanna's uh, furniture stuff is, is high end, but he's right. I mean, you know, why would anyone want to pay 30% extra? The sticker shock of it, I think is is unacceptable, I think.
1: So uh, in this process, what happened is that suddenly you had, you were struggling with this uh, demonetization cash cycle and suddenly you had this GST and GST is extremely laborious in the sense that suddenly you have to deal with several kinds of invoices and stuff like that because you have to produce that invoice to get credits. Let's say you've paid, uh, somebody's paid credit, somebody's already paid tax on the things you bought, you've got to source that and it's coming from multiple suppliers and you know there is a time for everything if times are normal then businesses get adjusted to this but we had twin shocks just coming in parallelly, coming in sequentially sorry in very quick time and obviously business persons are very irritated with several things and then one thing which the states and i think government- we should
0: make clear to the audience like when when we say invoicing what that means is that there's a transaction it's a legitimate transaction right um, you know, to a system that's used to working on cash, creating invoices is not necessarily um, it's not part of normal practice, right. especially for uh, intermediary stages. I think that yes, would be yes, a really yes. good way yes. of describing it. I ag- yeah. I, I, great,
1: great, great addition. And, uh, you know, all this while uh, there is there is this, a certain section of uh, people who are dealing with several state matters. And I've uh, I've had the sort of privilege to attend some of those presentations and one thing one thing very clearly came out is that gst requires all the states and the center to be on the same same level as far as technology is concerned as far as people's usage of uh, you know the invoicing system the tax uh, the, the receipt system all that has to be has to be has to be very similar and and the preparedness of some of those state uh, finance uh, or state taxes fellows has to be similar. I mean, you cannot have a Karnataka person who understands some of these things really well, a Gujarat person understands some of these things well, and a UP person doesn't understand it. I mean, when I'm saying UP, I obviously mean that, uh, you know, obviously that some of these states are very laggard in standing these things. And uh, so it became a problem because
0: uh, So what we're saying is, what we're saying is that there's what? How many? 27 different systems that sort of have to be amalgamated into one system? Right. 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 Okay.
1: Yep. and uh, that also uh, is kind of uh, uh, both interesting and challenging because uh, suddenly you you know you require uh, when you are dealing with your own state you know you you understood some of that system you understood some of these guys but then you're dealing with multiple states and and all these problems began to compound and especially demonetization with cash not coming in uh, very adequately uh, so and then GST basically requires that everybody has to file taxes and that's that's very good but at the same time that system has to has to be functional uh if there is a supplier or there's a producer in in maharashtra and he's supplying to several states then all these authorities in these states have to be to be talking in similar language i mean you cannot really have have you know different different systems and uh, to amalgamate all this for a long time we had this gst network which was being developed which was an it Uh, thing, huge, huge project where you're trying to put all these indirect tax systems onto one system so that these things can be captured, the information can be captured. People know that, okay, this guy's paid this much, the state knows that this guy's paid this much. And as a result, you know, that value addition taxes can work,
0: you know. And is this system uh, being implemented after the regulation has been introduced or they, they implemented or tried to implement the system before the regulation was introduced?
1: No, I mean it was implemented before, but having said that, it it obviously ran ran into teething problems, and uh, okay. like like all systems, and you know right. we were trying to put everybody on board, and uh, in a humongously populated country like India, with with a lot of chaos already in the system because of demonetization with GST, and people are not sure what's going on, and there were you know just like some people move from a lower VAT rate to a higher VAT rate, and uh, then they didn't know how do you you know. It, it required not just, it's not just some, uh, some, some some kind of a tax change, it required several behavioral changes. Yeah. And uh, you were anyways very irritated with as behaviorally because of the, the cash problems. And suddenly you have to deal with taxation problem as well. And in India, it's not, I mean, a lot of times there's a lot of criticism about people not paying taxes, but the burden also lies on the state, which somehow has people who, who are in who part of these uh, processes? Uh, they they make it make lives very miserable for most of the business persons, and as a result, the first thing a business person wants to do is to avoid the tax guys. I mean, you you don't have right, uh, you know they, there's that they, they make you run around and they make you do things which. Are, I think are it's really fair to say
0: that uh, it's the the relationship is mutually antagonistic. Right, right, right. Yeah. Absolutely. So, so
1: there. Uh, when it comes to economics, obviously, these things began to play a role now. It's not very surprising that uh, hastily uh, done demonetization, which we discussed in the last uh, episode, and, and a very hastily done GST will obviously make
0: lives very, very miserable for much of the Indian business community. Right. And uh, so, so uh, the, the framing reference that you had established for demonetization, which I thought was really good, was we sort of, it was akin to a monetary tightening, right? Right. And my sense is that what you're suggesting is Actually, that the GST uh,
1: demonetization. Act- I'll just I'll just interrupt briefly. It was not yeah. really monetary in It was monetary writing for some, but for banks, a lot of cash came to deposits. Some of these banks could lower their interest rates uh, because the, because of the kind of money which which came to them. So the demonetization created these two layers. I mean, some people, for some people, you know, especially the banks and all who suddenly had all this liquidity, they could lower the interest rates. But at the same time, because of the cash crunch, you know the, the industrialists, uh, you know, fed, felt this pain. It's not as if all that deposited money went to went to immediate loans and stuff like that, because correct, uh, uh, you know, the cash thing is very different. I mean, you're dealing with day-to-day affairs, and each every day, if one has to go to the bank counter to to withdraw some cash to pay his workers or her workers, and so on and so forth, it leads to problems. So, it so for the several-
0: small and uh, for the small and medium sector. Right. Uh, businesses. Potentially, th- it was sort of like monetary tightening.
1: Right. It was it was uh, yeah. a monetary tightening
0: for them. Sure. The, I, I think what you're saying is that the GST kind of w- had the same effect.
1: Yeah, in a way, because uh, you neither had uh, resources and now you have to deal with uh, layers of bureaucracy. And I don't know, I think this needs a wider study uh, that the, the state always puts the onus on the taxpayer to kind of pay taxes and everybody's called, you know, so-called anti-national or, you know, things like that. If, if you're not really paying taxes, uh, I think in terms of really making it easier for people to pay taxes, that is something which is not approached. There have been several attempts to ease income taxes, but I think the life of a business person in India is still very, very complex. I mean, the dealing with these officials is, is problematic and GST, doesn't allow you to escape this, you know, you have to be part of this. Correct. And you're dealing with all these guys. Yeah. And at the same time, you're not sure how do you deal with them?
0: Well, I mean, look, um, it was quite telling that Amazon came to India, uh, I think Bezos came like maybe a week ago and said, Hey, we're gonna invest a billion dollars. And primarily, it was Amazon pushing their small business services. And I think it's basically (laughs) to to create a startup ecosystem, which is going to help people just comply with the red tape and all of uh, of this uh, overhead, so to speak. And this is not just in India. India, it tends to be a little more complicated than everywhere else. But uh, I think a lot of people don't realize that US GAAP the generally account the generally accepted accounting principles US GAAP is actually one of the largest and most complicated uh, accounting principles They are uh, European GAAP is like uh, okay. my accounting professor was telling me like European GAAP is like 10 pages and then American the US GAAP is like 100 pages and it's just you need an expert to help you navigate that system I mean I know why it happens in the US because there's a lot of industry specific uh, regulations that are there but in India it always surprises me that when you have a population you want to encourage them to do business and we talk about ease of doing business but the amount of paperwork that you have to go through is just ridiculous
1: yeah absolutely I mean and uh, so again I mean th- these were twin shocks and uh what is also so essentially another problem which uh, came up was uh this whole slowdown in the agricultural sector, partly because of, you know, demonetization and and uh, partly GST. And then the, the weather patterns have not been great. Uh, so you've got random monsoons uh, and stuff like that. So even the agricultural slowdown was now beginning to hurt. And uh, the prime minister made promises about doubling farmer's income, but you know, one is that okay, you gave income to farmers, and you say okay, you're running five thousand. I'll give you ten thousand. Your your income is doubled. But another is to increase this whole productivity in farming, which ensures that you generate that double, you know, doubling income. But uh, all of those things were kind of piecemeal. I mean, there's nothing been there's no uh, there's not been uh, enough thought to some of these ideas. And again, uh, both demonetization and uh, GST put put a huge demand shock in the system. I mean, suddenly you're dealing with with challenges which Uh, will take time. In the long run, you know, you would imagine that all these things will ease out. But some of those small businesses were dealing with these problems over a very short run.
0: Right. uh, And, and we had established uh, last time around that, you know, there wasn't enough resilience in the system. And so it really pushed a lot of people over the edge where they just, you know, they weren't functional anymore. uh,
1: So all these things, I mean, have basically led to uh, led to these problems. And then, I, I would like to you know, mention this uh, interesting book, which Pooja Mehra has written uh, right, calling yes. India, the lost the lost decade. Uh,
0: so you've mentioned this now a couple of times. So why don't you spend right. like maybe a couple of minutes just you know, what so is I, I, what is Pooja talking about? And uh, why is it that uh, we should be reading the book?
1: Okay, so I hope Pooja gives me some brownie uh, points for discussing her book. Uh, she's <laughs> a she's a decent friend. I've not met her so far, eager to meet her some someday. The lost decade from two thousand eight to two thousand eighteen uh, largely looking at some of these economic factors which, which we've been dealing with and also some very interesting personal factors which personality factors which matter in some of these things now mm-hmm. uh, I go back to two thousand eight where the UPA government uh, struggling with the two thousand eight crisis and they go with the stimulus and chidam and, and uh, just around two thousand and eight is when uh, the the Mumbai terror attacks happened uh, in November. Okay, in in November is when the Mumbai terror attacks happened, uh, 2008, and uh, that time uh, there is a reshuffle in the finance ministry. Uh, Chidambaram suddenly moves out. Uh, Chidambaram moves out uh, to uh, to, be, to be the home minister because of uh, the the it was seen as a fiasco on part of the home ministry not to these attacks, and uh, Manmohan Singh uh, takes up the the mantle of finance ministry. Uh, then then. Then the government also is buzzed off a wide fiscal stimulus, and as a result, uh, things, things are looking okay. I mean, and India recovers very quickly from the, from the thing. Uh, and then what happens very interestingly is, Manmohan Singh is, uh, has to go through this uh, shocking, uh, surprising uh, bypass surgery. I mean, there is a sudden, sudden development, uh, some, some cardiac problems, and he has to go, and as a result, uh, the finance ministry uh, comes to Pranam Mukherjee and uh, and what happens is that when Pranam Mukherjee takes up finance ministry, he's not able to kind of you know unwind the fiscal stimulus very quickly. Some people even point out that, in fact, Pooja herself points out that Pranam Mukherjee had appointed Manmohan Singh as the governor of RBI in 1982, when he was a finance minister. And Pranam Mukherjee was very upset by the fact that he was not nominated as a finance, as a prime minister. And uh, basically, Manmohan Singh was the prime minister who was his junior. Some of those economic things which Manmohan Singh and uh, Brahm and all of them were doing in the in that period, he wanted to sort of undo them uh, and you know create problems for the. I find that to be very, very, very interesting and all the same time very, very problematic. I mean, how political uh, things could disturb some of these things. So, uh, why I'm pointing to this episode is is the fact that even in the even in the 2014 19 period arun Jetli uh, was towards the end he was kind of going to the hospital because of his uh, medical problems you know you kept having Piyush what uh, is which is, uh, which is uh, Piyush Goyal? Piyush Goyal as the as the finance minister and coming in and so there is a lack of continuity uh, continuity in some, in terms of some of these understanding of these things and there is also you know, wide criticism that Arun Jetli doesn't really understand economics and finance. He's a lawyer and you needed somebody. But Arun Jetli gets a GST going. He tries to convince all these state ministers and does a good job of it. But at the same time, he doesn't really have a grasp on economics and finance matters. Uh, so some of those things of personalities and you know how some of these positions go to people who you think will uh, do an interesting job, but because of some political permutations and combinations, things, uh, things begin to go badly. Okay. And in, obviously Arunjitli knew about GST, but had no idea about demonetization. And it's not very clear whether he could have done anything about it because it was primarily prime minister's decision, but it's, so some of these things of uh, who is under power and what he does and does not do all those things, uh, you know, matter, matter. And and, uh, Pooja kind of takes you through this whole narrative on uh, apart from some of these economic reasons, uh, these personalities and you know who's who's do who's where, and what he or she ends up doing is
0: kind of quite important. Right. And so uh, basically, laying like a framework of almost like a, a political economics kind of a framework. Right. right. Absolutely. Um, yeah. And
1: and as it's it's also very sort of interesting that you, when Arun Jetli is unwell and you bring Piyush Gol in, uh, you Piyush Gol presents interim finance. Uh, interim budget. And everybody is thinking that, okay, in 2019, when the government, whenever, if the government comes back, Piyush Goel is going to be the finance minister. And you get Nirmala Raman, who was so far part of the external affairs, uh, you bring See, her... Sitaraman uh, was uh, defense, wasn't she? Oh, defense, sorry. De- you bring her from defense to uh, finance. You take Rajnath to defense, uh, who was handling home ministry, and you bring Amit Shah as home minister and you bring uh, former bureaucrat uh, as the finance, as the foreign minister. So between, I mean, I don't understand any of the other portfolios, but between finance, I think uh, there was a case for maybe Pujgal continuing as a finance minister because he'd already presented interim finance ministry and he must have gone through the logistics of presenting the budget, but you got a new finance minister in. Uh, who, and uh, so he far, is,
0: uh, for everyone, uh, he is currently uh, commerce. And railways. Commerce and railways, yes.
1: Time for Nirmala to figure out things. I mean, people might criticize her, but at the same time i mean the kind of challenges she took up as a finance minister and all this while it's it's not it's not really nice that the government has been ignoring the advice of economists and several people have been talking about impending slowdown impending slowdown and how demonetization how gst and all these things are going to impact your economy all these advices are being ignored and uh, it doesn't really put it doesn't really you know put a good impression and the pressure is always on the rbi to cut interest rates we've not uh, maybe that's for the next episode but demonetization impacted RBI's autonomy like nothing else because suddenly RBI was under a lot of pressure for doing whatever and and there was uh, was this phase in RBI's uh, thing where it was not RBI's governor which was taking the decision but there is a section in the RBI Act which allows the board to take decisions. I mean, superseding the governor.
0: So, well, uh, I mean, not... we, we've already established that we kind of don't really understand how the RBI is making decisions. So, so, um, so, yeah.
1: In this phase, all these things are getting very, very problematic. You know, you don't, you're not responding to the economists who are talking about these things. Same time, uh, you're ignoring them, you're ridiculing them, all kinds of things are going on, that's fine. I mean, but at the same time, people at the top are somehow unable to, you know, maybe make a coherent strategy of how do you get out of this problem?
0: Uh, so uh, let's let's try and uh, tighten up this uh, right. this this sort of what you're describing over here, which is the general the general perception uh, perception is that the central government is somehow ignoring the fact that there's a slowdown, right? Mm. I think maybe about uh, twelve months ago that was a valid criticism um, when Sita Raman then presented uh, her budget. There were some things which were very strange, and then, you know, literally month by month, they just it started unraveling. Uh, The big uh, reform was the reduction of corporate taxes, right? And I think the assumption over there was that they basically double down on this idea that they the the virtuous cycle, job creation, it comes from the private sector, and they they double down on that and. Uh, right. the the accusation was that they were ignoring the main concern the main cause of the slowdown which was a reduction in the demand and mm. uh, what you've basically done and described for us is you know given us an overview of why there was a slowdown in demand uh, because of the de- uh, demonetization in GST right and that has had a then uh, cascading effect into the more sort of official sort of structured larger, uh, business operations, the corporate houses and those sorts of things. Do you have a sense of why uh, the central government decided to reduce corporate taxes? Because I thought that was a very strange thing to do. My personal sense of, uh, was that they were expecting a trade deal with the US, which didn't materialize. But, you know, to kind of sweeten the pot, they um, that's what they did. But I'm not quite sure what you make of that. Yeah,
1: I thought so as well. I mean, uh, because it came into very strange... Uh circumstances as uh, Prime Minister was traveling to United States and for his howdy Mo- howdy event uh, suddenly you know the, the news started flashing that corporate tax rates have been reduced and reduced dramatically by almost 10 percent points so suddenly it was based on this assumption that you know corporates are going to you know look up look this up as a as a thing but let's let me now add another another problem with this ongoing slowdown which is making it even more problematic is this whole banking problem right. uh, so, and the, so the banking uh,
0: problem is sort of basically a collateral, uh, we discussed this in episode one, um, where it, this is almost like a collateral problem which has occurred, right?
1: Yeah, I mean, uh, a collateral plus uh, it's uh, so essentially, India went through this banking uh, loan boom, a credit boom in 2004, eight period and very quickly after the economy recovered, the banks were again going out and lending. And uh, some of them, some of those loans uh, became problematic. And uh, by 2013, you, you ended up having an NPA problem. And I think at that time, uh, some of these things could have been resolved. But, so, uh, but very
0: quickly, these loans becoming problematic. What does that? What does that mean exactly? Because I think it's not back.
1: No, no, it's no. Not that, paid.
0: Right. Non-performing assets that, that, right. that we understand. But huh. is, this because, is this because of mismanagement or is this because of fraud? Or both,
1: a bit of both, bit of both. But obviously, largely, you know, what happens is that a lot of these loans are based on the fact that uh, okay, this firm is going to do well. This firm is taking loans because economy is going to do well. And in two thousand eleven, very 2011-12, the growth rates had gone down to five percent, and so on and so forth. And several of these loans, which are given to infrastructure, telecom, and coal, and all these sectors where there were problems, there were accusations of frauds and scandals and scams some of these things started unwinding. And there was a lot of pressure on banks to be very careful in what they're doing and and so on and so forth. So the whole banking sector began to unravel, and if one can call it that.
0: Right. And in
1: 2013, uh, uh, Raghuram Rajan is appointed as the RBI governor, obviously a banking expert, and he begins to uh, look at this problem in a very different lens. Uh, Most governors would say, look, we need to bring this ratio down. Rajan was more interested. I don't know. I mean, there's a lot of, there is both positives and negatives of it. He was more interested in, in understanding the true picture. And he did something called asset quality reviews.
0: Right. Where, that was his major sort of initiative. Yeah.
1: So he, the, suddenly the NPAs, which were, you know, looking, uh, looking at something like six, seven percent or something like that. And it, it looked like a double digit number because uh, a lot of these uh, loans, uh, what the banks were doing was they were thinking that some of those are going to come back. He tightened those screws. And uh, as a result, what was initially being thought that, okay, it's perhaps going to be recovered. It was in the in the doubtful category. They all become
0: part of NPAs. So this is sort so, of akin to the stress testing uh, exercise, I'm guessing. Yes, that, yeah. stress
1: testing exercise. And uh, he's made to go out. We'd only discuss that in context of demonetization, but there's much wider banking problems going on. Right. right. And uh, then as Rajan moves out, Urjit is supposed to be taking over and uh, Urjit is made to go to soap what essentially the government should have done at that time is to, is to say, okay, we've got to resolve this banking problem. And you've got to resolve it by having the right people there. And they had the right team. I mean, Urjit and then Urjit got Viral Acharya who understands some of these things really well. Uh, they should have not really, you know, gone into demonetization and things like that, but really, really focus on the on the banking uh, troubles and and resolve uh, some of those problems. So you ended up delaying that resolution thing, and you were more interested in in unearthing black money, which, God knows where it was, and uh, you. And the, the whole and,
0: thing became very- what is the effect of this banking problem?
1: The, so the, the effect of this banking problem is that typically, now banks have become very conscious, growth rates have not really gone up, they have been, they've been squandering, which is again compounding to, these, to this uh, whole thing. And another problem which happened was that, you know, 2012-13 was also a phase of high inflation, and you wanted to lower that down. You lowered that lowered that down by increasing interest rates sharply. Uh, you had an inflation targeting regime, which which was only looking at inflation so far, and they tried to bring inflation down by increasing interest rates. So both a combination of higher interest rates and uh, increasing scrutiny on bankers and higher NPAs basically brought this whole credit growth rate down. Right. I mean, right. It's so not in, as if
0: in essence, the cost of capital has gone up.
1: Cost of capital has gone up. It's becoming far more difficult for these guys to get loans,
0: and uh, the rate of return founders. on that capital is going down. And so that's basically the yes. Yeah. So
1: it's it's a bit of both. Uh, the 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 corporates are looking at the slowing down, so they're not demanding, and people who are who want loans are not getting them because of and typically, uh, likes of Rogoff uh, in the, this time is different, and several other books point out that if you have a if you have a economic problem, I mean it can still be resolved. But if you have a financial problem accompanying it or a banking problem accompanying the economic problem, which is most of the the time the case, then that slowdown becomes more prolonged because it's not as if you can resolve the banking problem in very quickly. I mean, you can still pump prime the economy, get the demand going by some fiscal stimulus, by this, by this, by this. But if your banks are not stable and your banking system is not looking good, then you're gonna get into a problem. And as I discussed banks, when the banks started getting into trouble, uh, the NBFCs were the darlings of the investing classes. I mean, suddenly you said, oh, NBFCs are doing very well, but we forgot that basically NBFCs get uh, all that financial support from the banking system. So the banking system is not doing well because if let's say a bank is under problem, it can always bother you know, giving collateral, but the NBFCs don't have that option. NBFCs have to get, the, get those funds from the banks and the banks are reluctant and banks are going through a problem. The first thing they'll do is, is to, you know, try and insure their houses and not really give money to the NBFC. Some of those NBFCs started doing badly. The, the problem has now gone to housing finance companies, NBFCs, everything looks into a very problematic stage. And then these frauds come up. I mean, it's interesting how when United States was going through this financial crisis, you had this, uh, this uh, who was it guy? Uh, the Manzi? Madoff? Madoff, yeah. So that you had that yeah. Madoff uh, kind of a scam which came in from nowhere. So you will always have these episodes of uh, frauds coming in and so on and so forth, which further... Damping the whole schemes. sentiment on these schemes. They'll always come in and you know people uh because that's that's how it happens in the boom stages where you ignore some of those things and then they, they come to the fore. So multiple multiple of those financial problems are now getting in. So there, even if uh, let's say the finance minister does something to boost the rural demand and all that, unless they get this banking system right, which still looks which still doesn't look out
0: of the woods. I think there are still some significant problems. And so- Uh, The the RBI has lowered uh, interest rates to a certain degree, but has held off on lowering additional uh, rates because Mm. they said that, look, these, we've already lowered them. They haven't been transmitted to to the downstream uh, consumers, you know, those sorts of things. What do you think the central government can do to improve the situation? So let's let's focus on the banks, right? So what is it that the central yeah, government? Yeah, that's
1: my can do? that's my strength as well. So I mean, compared to GST, and uh, <laughs> I understand some some of these banking things much better than I understand the taxation system. So. I'm happy yeah, no, about so, the banking.
0: Yeah, yeah. Let's uh, let's address the banking system first, and then you know maybe spend five ten minutes later speculating on what else can be done. But uh, okay. go ahead. Uh, what's your solution for the banking system?
1: Uh, I think uh, see a lot of solutions have been there, uh, and they've been trying to do some things, but it's all piecemeal. It's not very consistent. Uh, and what I mean by that is that you know, the, one of the key areas, which key problems Indian banks have faced is this whole issue of governance, uh, by governance, I mean, you've not been appointing the right people, uh, you've been appointing the right people, but not giving them the right tenures. You're not, you're not really, you know, a lot of these appointments are based on political connections and so on and so forth. And, uh, when Rajan came in, he set up several committees to resolve some of these things. And there was a very interesting committee by PJ Nayak uh, which was, which looked at some of these governance problems in a very interesting and a sweeping manner. And uh, Dr. Nayak, uh, again, a banker, I mean, and an IS officer, a very rare combination. had listed some of those things and they, and they said, you need an appointment process of these chairpersons and, uh, you know, and all these boards, which is done in a transparent manner. And uh, the government shouldn't really have a say here. And this, they talked about getting a bank board's bureau. Uh, a triple B, uh, sort of an entity, mm-hmm. uh, into the, into the picture, and you said that triple B is basically going to it will be appointed by these government. There, there'll be these professionals who will appoint as and when these guys are retiring, as and when these guys are resigning, they'll appoint you know people on the board of, of all these public sector banks. Now, triple B was announced, and they at that time they under a huge fanfare they called it Indra Dhanush banking sector reforms, and they said banking sector this will just wipe away Indian banking problems. But it's one thing to just announce and give it, give it some package, uh, kind of a thing, Indra Danush and they said some seven things, capitalization and this BBB. But the BBB, uh, we don't know. What is that it why they I mean, called it
0: Indra Danush Because there were seven points? They said because right, right, the right, rainbow yeah. has seven colors? Okay. Yes, yes. Indra Danush right. for everyone is a rainbow.
1: So this, what is interesting is, is to know who was the chair of the BBB. It, it happens to be this person who, who basically broke the back of the UPA2 by exposing all those scams as a as an auditor. I'm forgetting his name again. Uh, so, so
0: he yeah, was not basically Subramanian Swami.
1: No, 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 no. He's another guy uh, who, interestingly, uh, he was appointed by the by the UPA tube to be the chief auditor general, uh, the CAG, which basically inspects all these records of the government, all this auditing of the government enterprises are done by the CAG.
0: Oh, and And, uh, he was uh, part—he the the same guy who was part of the BCCI as well. Right, Uh, right, right. uh, Just the name. I'm forgetting his name. Yeah, so
1: so he was appointed, and uh, we all thought that you know maybe there is some sensibility and some sense will come to these appointments. But again, it's been very random. You know, some of these positions lie vacant for a long time. Uh, The the tenures of the CEOs have not been Vinod uh,
0: Rai. Vinod Rai. Yeah.
1: So Vinod Rai is a very interesting piece. in again, Pooja's book, if uh, I think somebody like Vinod Rai, who's a fairly accomplished uh, IS officer and all that, he shouldn't have taken any positions with subsequent governments. I mean, it's kind of very problematic to, and uh, his uh, tenure is compared to, to the person who broke out the Beaufort scam and then went on to become the, the governor. I mean, BJP then appointed him as governors of some states and stuff like that.
0: When, right. So subsequent, they're, they're, subsequent. what you're basically saying is that there's potentially an element of quid pro quo that happened over there.
1: So so that's what I'm saying. I I I, I hope not. But what essentially these accounts of all these people we read because we don't uh, know any of these things. I mean, so that's where these personalities coming and we are thinking that maybe Rai will somehow get this banking thing right, but unfortunately, main ideas of PG&I committee uh, were not really implemented and
0: um, this and is where very briefly what what were maybe one or two points of those of, of yeah so banks. he'd
1: basically spoken about as I said this uh, this triple B sort of a board which is going to appoint and then he'd, he'd spoken about uh, you know the tenures of all these chairpersons which has to be clarified and as I say this uh, I need to differentiate that basically when it comes to regulating Indian banking RBI is basically the sole authority but when it comes to regulating public sector banks you know, the nationalized banks whose history we studied, whose history we discussed, the 20 of them, uh, they are regulated by the finance ministry. Appointments and this, that every of these things is basically done by finance ministry. And that is under the Nationalization Act and also under the SBI Act where, you know, the finance ministry is basically taking the call. So it creates a dual power structure. You know, the RBI uh, and the government are always at, and the finance ministry always wants to show the RBI that look, I am the boss. On in some terms of terms of these, so, so there are loggerheads. So even if you form this committee, which you are, you are, you are, you are full right to. It's up, it's up to me whether I want to accept those those measures which, you know, your appointed committee has said. Okay, so in that sense, uh, you know, this I'm forgetting the entire details of those com- of those of that committee. And you know, you basically did away with it. Uh, you didn't really, you know, implement the. And some of those things have been known for a long time before even PJ and committee, you can read Narasimham committee report in 1993, which set up the uh, state, which set up the reforms. It talks about pretty much the same things that you need. So to governance, really,
0: the, what you're basically describing is, uh, is government, is, the, uh, is, the governance. is good governance. Yeah.
1: Yeah. So, so then uh, uh, this whole banking uh, trouble is, is the fact that you, you have all these chairpersons who are appointed for a very limited time. By the time chairperson understands the problem, he's if if that person is doing an honest job, most most of the time, he's shuttled off and he's kind of. So you you ideally have you have to give them a longer time. You have to give them proper targets and you know proper deputies in place to to resolve these things. And then see the difference between perhaps you could achieve some of those things in '91 was uh, you gave them clear goals, saying that okay the role of Rangarajan as RBI governor at that time was was to achieve these, and the finance ministry was not giving them any shocks to, to deal with, right. you know, but during this period, so these shocks have come into the GST, which took away the problems. I mean, the impending problems of banking resol- resolution and, uh, and you know dealing with it because this is something which is not going to happen very quickly. I mean, the, the, the corporate industry, the corporates are stuck with some of those bad assets. So those have to be resolved and there has to be a dialogue. All these things take time. But then suddenly you pushed banks into dealing with cash problems and those cash problems continue to be uh, problematic. And uh, then you, you have these tenures where people are coming in and going out. So uh, a chairperson is not able to, is not able to take a call as to what I am supposed to really do because by the time I act on something, my tenure is going to be over. So several of those, uh, you know, compounding problems, which, which needed to be resolved, have all been, we, we've not really had the attention there. And then this whole thing of merging banks. And I mean, what are you going to achieve out of that? When Narsimam committee, when it was formed, the, the basic idea was that you needed uh, you needed four or five big banks at the top and so on and so forth. You don't need so many public sector banks. So at that time, uh, and allow new private sector banks to come in, which will compete with these guys. Right. But unfortunately, The initially those some of those things did not go in go into planning, but this is not the right time to really merge these banks because then what happens is that the chairperson of these three banks or two banks, the attention moves away from resolution of those problems, of those NPA problems, to again merging. Right. So you deflect their attention. So what needs to be done here is that you know they all have to be on board and they Mm -hmm. said, okay, this is a problem which needs to be tackled, and let's do it sincerely rather than you know, getting into this announcement mode. I mean, there is a, I don't know I, I, when did this start or how, but we kind of, I, I learned this from uh, the Swedish experience. I remember reading one of the Swedish policymakers, Sweden went through its problems in 1990s. And he says that we uh, made it a point to under, so we made lower promises and delivered more, you know, right. But in India, typically this has been a thing that, you know, you end up promising more and you end up delivering far lesser. Right. And all these, uh, you know, there are several things which you keep exposing the system to, exposing the bank chairpersons to, and uh, the accountability and all that is 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 not really there. I mean, uh, we've had uh, three fairly interested, interesting scholars uh, at the RBI, uh, Rajan uh, Patel and uh, and Viral Acharya, uh, but unfortunately, the treatment meted to them has not been great and uh, why would there be any incentive for anybody to really you know join the rbi or or you know work on some of these problems uh, because so, uh, time it seems make... to me
0: it seems to me what you're saying is that there's no quick fix number 1 right um, number 2 because it's going to take some time uh, one needs continuity of leadership one needs clarity of thought they can't be really distracted about, you know, other sort of whatever's going on. And they can't be beholden to the political requirements uh, of whatever Absolutely. it is that the central government Absolutely. might form need, right? And uh, to that effect, they probably need, from that perspective, they need political cover, right? I mean, a good boss is a boss who can allow you to do whatever it is that you need to do and then take the heat off your back, so to speak. So really yeah. what the central government needs is they need to get people who are qualified to do their job and then just basically allow them to do their job and uh, protect them as much as possible. In
1: fact, just a lot of times, uh, you know, there is a talk of uh, that India needs a second uh, 1991 moment. I'm fine with that, but I think to me, it's very, very important that you also need the right people to to continue that moment. It's not as if some machines are going to do it. Uh, PV Narsimha Rao gave Manmohan Singh the charge and Manmohan Singh basically had somehow got the best people who he, who he thought could do the job and gave them very clear targets. All I'm saying is that we know the template. I mean, the template is that, look, you need the right people and you have to give them the freedom to to work. Some of those uh, disagreements and stuff like that, if they are tolerable, you've got to tolerate them. And uh, because if there is an expert, obviously, who believes certain things have to be done in certain way, he would want, you've recruited him for that expertise. And that expertise will obviously create some frictions and so on and so forth. And you have to allow those, you have to allow that judgment of that expert to prevail. I mean, unless there are some problems with that, I mean, there are obviously also examples of how certain things can go bad, but look, we, you don't do it with that intent that you know things will go bad. You want to improve things.
0: If they go so, bad, they go bad, so. Um, it seems to me that when it comes to external affairs uh, the central government has actually got that right where they've elevated jay shankar and jay shankar i, I think it does a really good job of navigating international uh, diplomacy and so it's not like they don't recognize quality my uh, my question though would be do you think they don't understand or they are not able to recognize uh, the quality of individuals required for the economy and the finance sector and those sorts of things or Or is it that the people who are qualified just simply don't want to work with the central government?
1: Second, I think perhaps it's somewhere in the first where it's not as if the government doesn't want good people and stuff like that. But the experiences so far have not been great, uh, to be honest. I mean, uh, Arvind Subramaniam, who uh, walked out as a chief economic advisor, uh, I think the treatment meted out to him was very unfair Uh, I can, I can. He came out with this paper where he questioned the Indian Indian story, and he said Indian growth rates have been much uh, lower. And he published a working paper on this. And I was amazed that how much. Uh, see, one, it's economics. You disagree, but you have to maintain certain uh, standards of communication. I mean, and you cannot really there were articles calling him a traitor, there articles calling him all kinds of things and by people who who have, you know, voice to the government and stuff like that I, without naming anybody of them. But it was quite disheartening to, to read the kind of press some people are getting for basically expressing an opinion. I mean, you you are free to do your research and and uh, discard uh, every bit of it. But before doing that, you kind of uh, used, used all kinds of things to, uh, you know, there is a... There was a, by... I think,
0: I think there was a level of discreditation that happened, which wasn't necessarily professional discreditation. It was more personal discreditation.
1: Yes. And uh, so even recently, there was this interview of this former uh, Niti Aayog uh, vice chair, who is basically saying, Oh, what was Arvind doing when he was the chief, chief economic advisor? And why, why didn't he speak up when he goes out? He speaks up, but look, he didn't speak up at that time because he perhaps, uh, as a chief economic advisor, I mean, it's kind of very difficult. And he's moved on. He's, he's a professional economist now. He's working somewhere.
0: Well, I mean, look, without uh, really. De the says things. the same thing. I mean, you know, Vivek De Vroy says the same thing, which is very, yeah, know, I'm very disappointed someone... with
1: Vivek. Uh, I have uh, kind of, uh, I have deep admiration for that person. But somehow, I don't know. I mean, his uh,
0: Every time someone asks him a pointed question, he says, look, I'm the prime minister's uh, economic advisor. My, my advice is to the prime minister. It's not to everyone else. So he's kind of, you know, even if he has something negative to say, he's not going to say it. So.
1: Yeah, I don't know. I mean, see, the, the point is that it's not very clear to me what people like the big are doing. Uh, in fact, he's the chair of prime minister's economic advisory council. And, uh, I, this takes me back to who was the former chairperson of the Prime Minister of Economic Advisory Council and Manmohan Singh, which was Dr. Rangarajan. And if one goes through those reports, Dr. Rangarajan would write. He would question some of those things which the government is doing. In fact, the government was reporting at that time un- under it was reporting the fiscal deficits uh, lower and not really accounting for some of those off-balance sheet bonds which the government was issuing. And Rangarajan, uh, Dr. Rangarajan issued a report saying that look, this is not the way to do it, and 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 then and then the government. Several of us were saying the same, but when the Prime Minister's Economic Advisory Council also says the same, then obviously the government has to do something, and they, then they corrected the ways. So this is how it should be. I mean, uh, we are not blaming the government. We are not saying anything. We are just simply looking at all these things available and asking for things to be improved. But if you go on to you know discredit everything and this that, then you know it kind of uh, so, uh, leaves I, a very bad. Uh, taste in everybody's, everybody's mouth. Yeah.
0: Right. So I think what you're basically saying is that uh, the central government needs to be transparent with some of this economic information. And if there's transparency in this information, then not only can they do a better job, but I think the market uh, can probably do a better job at addressing you know, a slowdown or any, any issues that arise. Would that be a fair sort of... Uh...
1: Yeah, it is. In fact, it's quite interesting. It's not just Arvind Subramaniam that Subhash Garg, who was the former finance secretary and uh, created a lot of problems for the RBI. He resigned and he's written up, he's been writing these blogs where he himself is pointing out how India's fiscal deficit is understated. So now, uh, I, it's not I, even criticism, it's just a point we're making. I mean,
0: Right. Uh, but, you know, when when single percentage point of GDP is probably too much, but, you know, half percentage point GDP, if that is emotionally or perceptionally driven, then I think one can, I think there's a balance between, uh, look, I think, I think one should always be positive about the economy, but when it actually comes to hard number and data, you have to be as transparent as possible. But absolutely. I think right. I mean, one can no understand why some of these comments are a little more hopeful and positive than they should be. Uh, and I think central governments and you know even central banks, they, they try and manage perception. Uh, that's probably a part of their role. Allow, get, get the right people, allow them to do their job, give them some sort of a political cover, um, because this is a little bit of a, a deeper problem than we thought. When it comes to data, be more transparent. We need to really understand what the problem is before we can sort of solve it. And fill um, up positions quickly. Right. Uh,
1: some, of these, yeah. some of these positions have been lying vacant. I mean, for instance, RBI deputy governorship, after, you, after somebody like Viral Acharya goes out, you have to wait for six months to appoint an RBI insider. If Michael Patra had to be appointed, he should have appointed, he should have been appointed right away. I mean, why do you have to wait for six months? You don't really need all that thinking and all that energy to go into, into right. some of these things that who's going to be appointed. Now that guy himself would be uncertain whether I'm going to be renewed or not, whether should I take this decision or not. And if you want to get a new guy, you appoint him or her. So that there's continuity. I mean,
0: okay. So uh, very quickly, we're sort of almost at the end of our uh, time period. But what else do you? do? So what? What are? What are like maybe two or three big things or that you're expecting from uh, the budget? For, uh, and the budget, I think, is being announced on Saturday. Is that correct? Right. Tomorrow. Okay. So that it was it was a, a two part question, which is. Mm. A, do you expect something big to be announced, and if so, what would that be? Or if are you expecting like one of those? I I hate to say it's a normal budget because India is such a large economy, but are you expecting? Are you expecting some? Do you think? Do you think the central government is going to take the opportunity and say, okay, look, we're you know we're in a problem. This is an opportunity to really come in and. Create some proper reform. Do you think they're going to take that opportunity, or do you think it's going to be more of the what do they call window dressing? You know that kind of a thing.
1: I think it's going to be a bit of both. There's going to be a fair bit of window dressing because all budgets are about telling us what aspirations are rather than executing. Uh, okay. Those things.
0: Uh, and uh, let's let's skip the window dressing part because that's probably not that important. Um, what, do you think what what are the big things that they might announce, or what do you think should be announced?
1: I mean, I wish I had an answer to this. I'm always struggling to uh, to figure it out. But obviously, banking is one. I think very clear conditions have to be mentioned to RBI to resolve this problem as soon as possible. Give them clear, defined targets and stuff like that. And uh, second is is obviously this fiscal deficit thing has been a problem uh, because for a long time there is this. Conditioning that you need, the fiscal deficit should be as low as possible, irrespective of the slowdown, irrespective of the
0: things. And the fiscal and, uh, deficit, the target is what? 3.8 3. or 4.2%. 3.3. is the target. Okay. And so, just quickly explain to me, like I'm a five-year-old, what does fiscal deficit actually mean?
1: So if, uh, if you're a five-year-old, uh, let's say uh, you get, you're not really earnings and basically government also doesn't earn. So it's a great, great way to think. So you get... Yep. You're getting this money from your parents, and uh, like the government gets the taxes from people, and then you've got to spend, all right. And uh, l- now, let's say your pocket money is 10 rupees, and you end up spending
0: 15. So this is clearly mm-hmm. male mail pocket money that we're talking about. <laughs>
1: sure, <laughs> absolutely. I mean, all uh, all our things go there, right? So so that five rupees has to be borrowed, right? So there. I go to this friend of mine in the dormitory and, you know, borrow that five rupees. And uh, in order to pay that five rupees back, I borrow from somebody else. I borrow from somebody else. I borrow from somebody else. And then the whole thing goes on.
0: So So, so in essence, what's happening is we got 10 rupees as pocket money. We went out, we wanted uh, a Pepsi and an omelet and we had to spend 15 rupees and we kind of have to borrow five rupees from someone. So,
1: So either from Harish, (laughs)
0: <laughs> or, or, a, or, somebody
1: who had some surplus uh, resources somewhere.
0: Harish okay. Omelettes, so, by the way, it's the best omelette ever. I have never been able to replicate that omelette. I agree. Clown. I agree. So, so yeah. So,
1: so in that sense, either you borrow from Harish, you say, okay, uh, this is on credit and stuff like that. But that borrowing has to be done. So, typically, the governments borrow from the financial markets and via bonds. And uh, this is what the fiscal deficit basically means that and within this now let's say you know you are borrowing uh, for repairing your cycle versus borrowing for uh, an additional omelet or an additional pepsi now if you're if you're trying to repair a cycle or let's say bind a book buy some stationery now that is something which which will really serve you you know you don't have a pencil you don't have a pen or your your cycle is not working it will help you in capital expenditure if i can call it yeah and the revenue expenditure would essentially be this pepsi and day to day expenditure right. so as long even if you're borrowing to let's say you know do something better you know make make things better for yourself or stuff like that uh, versus serving your immediate consumption needs uh, so if you're borrowing to serve your immediate consumption needs and you keep doing that that's it's problematic so instead in in this fiscal deficit parlance we have another concept called revenue deficit where the government should basically for all its consumption per, for running its day to day machinery it should meet that through its resources, it's generating, right? And whatever borrowing you're doing should be towards capital expenditure,
0: right? And, so, and usually, usually what governments, at least, you know, when it's election time, then there's populistic measures, and they're, they're basically right. borrowing money to um, buy more omelets and Coca Cola, and you know, those sorts of things. Yeah. yeah. Um, so, whereas uh, right now, the central government has the opportunity. They're not going. You know, elections are going to be in twenty twenty four. So they actually do have the opportunity now for you know borrowing money to fix the bicycle, you know, fix the books. Uh, so right. for capital expenditures, so to speak.
1: Yeah. So essentially, this uh, what is also problematic is that this has been going on, and again, there is criticism for this, and uh, if not criticism, there are several articles on this. What. What is ex- exactly happening in 2008, where some of those, as I mentioned, some of those off balance sheet items uh, were not recorded. And as a result, you were under representing a fiscal deficit. Something similar has creeped up where what is happening is that let's say there is a food, all these food corporation of India, and you know, these several public sector enterprises, which don't really have resources on their own, and they need to always borrow from the government. Now, if they borrow from the government, the fiscal deficit goes up. But the, what the government is doing is, is asking these entities to issue bonds. Like there are food Corporation of India bond. There are some other entities I'm forgetting. So ideally those bonds should be part of the balance sheet saying that, okay, this is the fis- true fiscal deficit. So if food corporation of India cannot pay on its own, basically it has to get that fund from the government. So either it borrows from the government, it, it shows up in fiscal deficit or it doesn't choose to borrow from the government, but issues its bonds. But those that reflect, it should reflect on the balance sheet, but it is not reflected on the balance sheet. Right. Of the government. So again, your fiscal deficit is underrepresented on account of both, uh, some of this tax slowdown is that it's still not very clear where your fiscal deficit is. And it again goes back to your, the point you're making the, the most important, the very important point is this transparency in economic data is very, very important. Only if you know the state of problem or you know the extent of things, you really know where you are. I think that thing which Arvind Subramaniam said that instead of criticizing it, you, you actually do a good study and understand whether it is actually underreported. I mean, or sorry, overreported, And in case of fiscal deficits, whether they are under underreported. Some of those things have to be part of the discussion and you have to be honest about the job. I mean, saying that, okay, look, this is the state of the problem when you're trying to resolve it. And the only way to resolve it is to understand what the problem is. We really don't know. The thing, Vivek, is that a lot of these things can be done. I mean, it's not, we've, we've come with 91 reforms, 2008, several things have been done. The template is all there. But I think we need a lot of transparency and some bit of, you know, government's thing on accepting some of those frictions and going ahead with it uh, rather than, you know, being very close to, uh, the ideas and stuff like that. I think, uh, I don't really have an exact answer. What will they do on taxes? What will they do on some other agricultural measures? Because they keep coming
0: and going. Right, right. I think because they're not going to be up for re-election, they have the opportunity to take the hit, so to speak. I mean, mm. I personally think that there is great benefit in being transparent, saying, look, mea culpa, I own this problem and I am now going to fix it, right? I mean, mm. I, live, I live in a startup ecosystem. We own our problems. I can only hope that the central government <laughs> owns their problems you know, even if they didn't create it, they're living with right. It it is their problem now. They've been in power now for like almost six years, so it is their it is their problem to fix. We're uh, out of time. Um, yes, we are. I think you would so, be at twelve o'clock. What's the time there? No, no, no. Uh, you're at twelve. I'm at ten thirty. Okay, ten thirty. Okay. Yeah. So uh, yeah, ten thirty at night. Yeah, it's noon for you. Mm-hmm. Um, okay. Cool. So yeah. Uh, thanks for okay. joining me um, come on
1: i'll, I'll
0: uh, we, uh, edit this episode out and we'll put it up and then uh, mm. let's let's find some time and I think the next one we should do a quick review on the on the budget and see what what happened and see if we were right some of our uh, ideas whether uh, the central government was thinking along those lines or not um, but then I think moving forward, I think one of the episodes that uh, we both want to do is one on You know, growth economics, GDP, uh, sustainability, how does that work? You know, that kind of thing. That'll be an interesting episode. And thanks for sharing that paper uh, with me. I have to still go through it, but uh, I'll uh, I'll take a look and then uh, we can sort of take care of that. This wraps up our series on the nationalization of the Indian banking system. We hope we've been able to give you a sense of the transitory nature of the Indian economy, post-independence. While we will discuss the 2020 budget in our next episode, our aim is to move forward into a discussion of the financial and economic systems and how they will change as we grapple with climate change. The idea is to set a vision for a more sustainable financial and environmental ecosystem. Do consider subscribing to the FOD podcast and if you like us to address a particular topic in future or tell us if something we got wrong, tweet us at MostlyEconomics or for those of you who like Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy at Maximegalon5. Thank you for listening.